This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and today I am joined by Amy Kanyak. Amy is a lawyer and part owner, partner of McDonald Kanyak in Concord, New Hampshire, and an excellent lawyer to, to boot. So, Amy, thank you so much for being with me. My pleasure. Good morning. So, for the few people who don't know you or don't know where Concord, New Hampshire are, um, can, you, can you explain those? Sure. Um, my name is Amy Kanyak. I am a trust and estates attorney in Concord, New Hampshire, which is halfway between the equator and the Arctic Circle. And I concentrate my practice in estate planning and trust in estate administration for high net worth individuals and their families. And about 12 years ago, my law partner and I, we, he and I started this law firm together back in 1998. And we have a boutique firm. This is all we do. And then about 12 years ago, he and I also started a non-depository trust company out of um, South Dakota. And it actually has its principal place of business here. And that was purely directed um, trust services that that company provided. And we sold that last year, actually, to a company from Liechtenstein, of all places, called IQEQ. So I practice law. I have a lot of experience with trust administration both on both sides of it, from the client side and from the corporate side. And that's how I spend my day. Some people would say that sounds really exciting. It was really exciting. <laughs> it, it, well, it is. It's a good job. Um, sometimes it's a little stressful, as you know, but um, uh-huh. for the most part, it's it's a pretty cool job. Well, I think a lot of people, when they think about trust, they probably don't. They don't think to themselves, you know, it's the place to be, New Hampshire. Right. And it, kind of ironically, the place to be with trust are generally places you don't think of being, right? So Alaska, Nevada, Delaware, New Hampshire, South Dakota, Wyoming, all of the places that have really made an affirmative effort to make themselves desirable trust jurisdictions are places that did it for a couple of reasons. One is in those smaller jurisdictions, they tend to have more agreeable legislatures that, you know, you can get somebody's ear and get somebody to sponsor legislation and pass the kind of laws you need to have these progressive trust laws and to develop innovative trust structures. And it's hard to do. I'm also licensed, for example, in Massachusetts, um, that is a paid big legislature that, you know, things move slowly down there. I think it took them like 10 or 12 years to get the Uniform Trust Code passed down there. So in these smaller jurisdictions, there's they're able to be a little more nimble, and that's why we're able to get those kinds of things done and attract those that kind of business to the, the state. Yeah, yeah, you, you're exactly right. And uh, you you left off the list Tennessee. I don't know why you're discriminating against our good folks in Tennessee. I think they'd be Tennessee they'd be... has good trust laws too. The list is growing, right? I try to keep yeah. it to the top five, but, um, and there's always, of course, debate about what is in the top five. Everyone's got an opinion, and most of the people who have an opinion have a dog in the fight. So yes, it's I used to go around with a bunch of ACTEC fellows, um, and we would give this dog and pony show about the pros and cons and differences of law in South Dakota, Nevada, Delaware, and New Hampshire. And for a while, I think we did this, I don't know, three or four times, we were playing the dating game to present this information, which was kind of silly but funny. And at the end of the game, the winner was always um, the jurisdiction where we happened to be sitting at the time because it's just <laughs> it's a push. It really is like everyone's got little curly cues that make them special and maybe some stuff that could be fixed. But the top jurisdictions are all pretty competitive and have pretty, for the most part, pretty similar um, 
at least concepts in the law. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's very true. And certainly in our practice, I physically am in Arizona and I practice here and then in, in Colorado too. And it, honestly, most of it for us is, is geographical bias. You know, Nevada, Wyoming, they're close. They feel like you could go over there and talk to somebody and you could drive there in a day. It's not that it's not some like far flung place like Delaware, even though Delaware has great laws or South Dakota, you know, who goes to South Dakota, but South Dakota has excellent laws, let alone Alaska, who goes there not on a ferry or cruise or fishing trip. Like it's, yeah. so I think there's a lot of that that goes on in the forum shopping that is some of the trust planning that we do. Yeah. And quite honestly, I mean, some of it comes down to something as simple as time zone. You know, we're in the Eastern time zone and that makes it attractive to people. Um, and it's not hard to get here. You know, my office where I'm sitting, I'm 60 miles from Boston, so it's not hard to get here. And stuff that seems pretty trivial actually becomes important to people if they want to go there, if they want to meet you and see your office and all that kind of stuff. I actually got licensed in South Dakota um, as part of my the trust company, South Dakota, the banking department kept asking us to show our unwavering dedication to the state of South Dakota, which we were happy to do. Um, but one of the things that made them really happy um, was that my partner and I became licensed in South Dakota. And we went out there. And the first time I went there, we got off the plane in Sioux Falls. And the airport, this is probably 10 years ago, was very small. And you got off the – and I had never been there. You got off the airplane, and there was a banner in the airport. And it had a guy – like dressed up to go hunting with a gun and a squirrel. And it said, please don't shoot the wildlife off of the power lines. <laughs> oh my gosh, I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> but they have great trust laws. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, now you know. Yeah. <laughs> now you've been informed. I won't do it the <laughs> next time the thought crosses my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. It's good to know. You know, it's good to go to a new place and be informed right up front. Like, what are the important <laughs> social cues you should be picking up on? <laughs> Exactly. Oh, man, that is hilarious. The the thing that I get asked sometimes when we're going to prepare these sorts of trusts that we're alluding to, which are, I would say, typically, although not in every instance, but typically, they're meant to last over generations. Okay, they're going to last for a very long time. And if you just assume each new generation is, say, 40 or 50 years, you're talking about hundreds of years, right? And then, mm -hmm. So these things are going to last forever. And the, or, you know, Virtually forever. In, in, in our state, for example, the rule, I guess, perpetuities period, which is when trust would have to end for anybody who doesn't know what that means, is 500 years. I can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone 500 years from now. And so people seems long enough, right? Yeah, uh, see, it's pretty long. So people are asking me frequently, well, what do we do? It, because you said it's irrevocable, that means it can't be changed, right? And I'm sure that your answer is similar to mine. Which the answer is no. <laughs> yeah. Wrong. You can change it. And I mean, you know, I think back to when I started practicing law um, in the 90s, and irrevocable meant irrevocable. There was nothing else to do. Once you set it up, you were stuck. And just over time, that's really evolved. And there are a lot of mechanisms to make changes, you know, and the restraints are really only grantor intent. You generally can't make a change to a trust that's going to violate grantor intent um, when they set up the trust. And you don't want to make a change that's going to cause somebody a tax problem. But if your trust isn't working right because the administrative problem uh, provisions are not correct or they're outdated or there's a gap, you certainly can change a trust to fix that. And in some cases, you can change dispositive provisions, who gets what and when, um, Again, it's all facts and circumstances, but certainly there are a lot of ways to do that um, statutorily. So it depends on where you are. For the, unless, unless it's in the trust agreement, you certainly can bake that into the trust agreement 
um, and have it be valid. So, for example, in my office, we've been drafting internal decanting provisions into our agreement for as long as I can remember, but we've only had statutory decanting here probably for 15 years. So, you know, there are a lot of ways to get to that, whether it's decanting or a merger or a non-judicial settlement agreement or whatever it is, there's lots of ways to change things so people don't get stuck. But we always do tell people you can't get the money back. <laughs> that's a really important thing. You can change the trust, but you can't get the property back. Yeah, that's that's exactly the answer that I give people. I say, well, irrevocable means you can't take it back. So once you put it in, guess you could buy, you're not getting it back, at least not directly. We might be Correct. able to... You know, you could maybe finagle in some indirect ways, but there's not going to be any sort of direct access. Well, you mentioned decanting, which I think is the big, exciting, sexy one that um, gets talked about at lots of conferences and things. So you want to maybe explain what that is, and then we can talk about how it how it happens. What, what is it? Where does it come from? How does it happen? Yeah, so decanting in the trust sense is the same as decanting in the wine sense, where, you know, in the wine sense, you take it the wine out of the original bottle where stuff has, you know, settled on the bottom that you don't want to drink, you pour it into a new container, uh, which I think is actually called a decanter. And it's usually shaped funny. Sometimes it's shaped like a duck. And the reason it's shaped like that is allow the air, it allows the wine to air out. And that aeration process makes the wine taste better. So just taking it out of one bottle and putting it into another vessel improves the wine. And it's the same exact concept for trusts, where we take it the property out of the original trust and we put it into a new trust that's better for whatever reason that new trust is better. And again, for the same reasons I just articulated, whether it's because your administrative provisions were messed up, um, probably one of the number one reasons we see this happen is trustee succession is never right in people's documents. And so we need to fix that. Um, whatever the, the issue is, if we can fix it, moving it from one trust to another is often cleaner than some of these other options, um, in part because depending on where you are, you don't need the consent of the or participation of the beneficiaries. It's something that the trustee has the power to do, because once you start getting beneficiaries involved, then you know it, it's just opening a, a can of worms because everyone starts having questions and you know all that kind, of, which isn't necessarily bad, but. Um, it's cleaner sometimes to just decant it and have this shiny new trust that does what you want it to do. Yeah, and there's a, a patchwork of rules about decanting across the country, which is a little bit cute. Well, it's, a, it's sort of like a patchwork, and then there's a uniform law that's meant to rein in the patchwork, and it will never, as far as I'm concerned, rein in the patchwork the way it's drafted. And, and I'm saying that from the perspective of I have my foot in one state where we have our own very specific statute, that's Arizona, and I have my foot in another state, and it uses the uniform statute in Colorado. And they're very different, and you can do very different things with them. So well, what is it like in, say, New Hampshire? And if that's different from the Uniform Act, we can kind of drill into what the Uniform Act does differently. Yeah, the New Hampshire Act is completely different from the Uniform Act. And, you know, the Uniform Act is intended to be user-friendly across the board. So when the Uniform Acts are promulgated, um, they're intended to be enacted in their entirety by the enacting jurisdiction. What you're not supposed to do is cherry pick through a, a Uniform Act, right? Which is exactly what happened with the Uniform Trust Code. Like there mm -hmm. is a Uniform Trust Code. And then most places, New Hampshire in particular, it, well, as a good example, did cherry pick it. We initially enacted a lot of it part and parcel. And then over the past 20 years, We've been making, you hear this like on um, American Idol, make it your own, right? That's what we've done. We've made it specific to here for things that are important to the people here. And so it's not completely uniform. Um, and so that's with the decanting act. I agree with you. I think everyone's going to end up with something different because decanting really is something that 
was not available until pretty recently in the scheme of things. And so people are just trying to figure it out as we go. So New Hampshire, this is one of the few places that you can decant um, even if the trustee does not have discretion to distribute. So as a general proposition, in order to decant a trust, the trustee has to, its distribution power has to be discretionary. Um, and in New Hampshire, that's not true. You can decant even if um, the trustee's discretion is subject to a standard, like the trustee can distribute its discretion, but only for beneficiaries, health support and maintenance. Um, or if the trust says the trustee has to distribute for health support and maintenance, you can still decant here under those circumstances. Um, so that's, so our decanting statute is really very flexible. We don't require notice to the beneficiaries. Um, you can, you can do a lot of things here pretty easily, um, compared to someplace like Florida where I'm not licensed, but I just did this literally last week. We had a trust that started in Florida. We wanted to get it up here because that's where the trustee was. And Florida decanting is quite an exercise. There's a lot of, um, and they call it down there, they call it an exercise of a power of appointment. But we had to notify everybody and there's certified mail and there's days of, you know, we have to wait for people to object or not. And so there's a lot more um, sunshine in Florida and their decanting act just because they they do have what essentially are safeguards for the beneficiaries. So the trustee can't do something that's going to, you know, harm somebody. Not that we would do it in New Hampshire to harm somebody, but to me, it's just administratively easier if I don't have to get all those other people involved. Yeah, it's similar. Well, okay, so in in either Arizona or Colorado, you cannot do a decanting if you only if you have a mandatory distribution. So in both places, the distribution power has to be discretionary. Although the Arizona statute says the stand, it regardless of the the standard. So if it's full discretion or like just a little bit of discretion, it doesn't matter. Any any like you know grain of salt or grain of sand of discretion will then open up the door under the Arizona statute to be able to do a decanting. There are two limitations that Colorado maintained from the Uniform Act that people sometimes are surprised by. One is you you mentioned the the notice period. So in Colorado, you have to give the beneficiary 63 days notice. Why 63? <laughs> Nobody knows. It's a stupid number. And I, it's anybody's guess why they came up with 63. Uh, I know there was a committee that worked on this uh, with the Colorado State Bar for a long time. I'm not trying to impugn anybody that was on the committee, but it's a, it's a, it's a silly number. Uh, but every number you pick is going to be arbitrary at some level. And then in Colorado, depending on the distribution standard that was in the document, you're limited or not on what you can do in the new decant the new the receiving trust because if the if you had a, a limitation on the trustee's discretionary power in the new trust substantively it's supposed to be the same you can't really change things substantively so you can do a lot of min- administrative changes like you were talking about but you can't change the substance but if if the trustee had full discretion to make distributions and sort of the gloves come off and you can make changes in the new trust in Arizona that's not the case the limitation is like you were mentioning you you can't uh you know you can't change non-discretionary distribution. So you couldn't change like an annuity interest or something like that. And there's a limitation on if there was a quote unquote ascertainable standard in the existing trust. In the new trust, you can't you can't make it a looser standard if the trustee is a potential beneficiary under the looser, looser standard, but otherwise you can change it. And it's just like, you know, how how you negotiate between one state and the other and sort out which state's law applies in one instance versus the other is um, why we have jobs, Amy. It is. And you know what's, um, at least to me, and hopefully people who, who are listening to this, is this issue of what law you're using, right? And so, for example, in New Hampshire, our decanting and decanting is, as a general proposition, considered to be an administrative power, right? It doesn't have to do with the construction or interpretation of the trust agreement. It doesn't have to do with its validity. It's how the trust is administered. And so 
our decanting statute actually says decanting is an administrative provision. And so what we see, because we get a lot of inbound trusts here, we get tons of people coming here and I do a lot of review for other lawyers um, who are trying to move trusts here. And so I would say the number one question we get with respect to decanting is someone saying, well, what if I move the administration of the trust to New Hampshire and I have a New Hampshire trustee who's keeping the books and records there, but the original trust agreement is governed by the law of some other state. Can I still use your decanting statute? And I will say yes, if it's an administrative change you're making, but I would not do it to make a dispositive change because I think that the disposition is still governed by the law of another state. But that's not clear. And the Uniform Law Commission has just started um, to work on a uniform law called the Conflicts of Law and Trusts in a State. And um, I'm actually the ACTEC observer to that committee. And we had our first meeting like two weeks ago in Chicago. And that was like a mind-bending meeting. It was like nine hours long. And we spent all of this time on what's administration of a trust, what's construction and interpretation to get to issues like this because they're not resolved. And hopefully through that exercise of this act, it will, and decanting is on our list of like things we need to think about in this context, because it really kind of is the wild west. There are no rules and nobody understands conflicts of law, like nobody. Right. And on this committee, it's kind of crazy, like the brain power on this committee, but it's a bunch of professors and like the, the reporter for the restatement on conflicts and all these people who've given it a lot of thought and nobody had any answers. I thought, well, it makes me feel better. That's about scary. Myself. It was. <laughs> yeah. But that's sort of like where we're still in sort of the beginning stages of the decanting process. We can do it and everybody's doing it, but nobody is entirely confident about what the consequences are if we're doing it right. So that's a little bit scary. But, you know, I think you can work around a lot of that and get a good result and be pretty confident of what you've done. Mm-hmm. If you're not trying to play games or be fast and loose. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, what if a client wants to do a decanting? What would be the process for them, at least from your perspective? Yeah, well, I think it depends on if the grantor is living. That's a bigger problem, I think, because usually if the grantor is living and they've set up an irrevocable trust and now they don't like what it says, um, they come to the drafting attorney who's their lawyer. So like my client comes to me and they say, I don't like this or there's something wrong with it. Can we change it? And if the answer is yes, and we can decant, the question really becomes, who is my client? Because the grantor is not going to be the trustee. It's going to be somebody else. So we really are careful about that because you don't want that process to look like the grantor is amending the trust. Because if you do that, then the IRS, I think, has a pretty good argument that the grantor somehow retained a power over the trust agreement that causes inclusion in their estate of the trust assets, which is the entire point of setting up the trust in the first place. I can't think of any case that actually talks about that, but certainly everyone who decants worries about that. So in that case, when the client comes to me and we agree that maybe that's the best way to move forward, then we try, we, we work with the trustee and always recommend that the trustee get separate counsel. Now that's a ridiculous proposition. If the wife, but let's say the husband's the grantor and the wife is the trustee. Now I have to go get the wife separate counsel. That clients don't understand that concept, right? That's really hard to like get them to digest all of that. I think it's the right way to do it. I think maybe occasionally you could get away if the circumstances are right with not doing that. But like, you know, this will this will be used at some this podcast will be used when I'm testifying as an expert witness and someone tries to impeach me with my own words. Right. So I never say never. But I think the better practice is to have, for the, the trustee to have separate counsel to avoid that inclusion issue. But um, it'll come on like one of those old timey recordings with like the piano music in the background. It'll, that's what it'll static. sound like. Yeah, the static. You know, I got I got deposed like right before COVID on this case. I was an expert and um, 
those on whether the trustee had exercised their discretion correctly. At the time, I had just done this. I had written a long article, and I had spoken at Heckerling about the exercise of discretion. And the guy who was deposing me, like these litigators, no offense to anyone who's a litigator who may be listening to this, generally are not like super um, technical T&E lawyers, right? And so he didn't, I'm sure he was a lovely litigator, but he didn't know a ton about trust in the state. So he didn't really know the right questions to ask me. And he could tell he was not asking me the right questions. And while we went to lunch, he read my article and I came back from lunch and he had highlighted it. And he was trying to impeach me with my own article. Like you said in this article that this would happen and it was awful. So I'm not, I don't want to do yeah. that here, but um, I so. know the feeling. I know the feeling once in a blue moon, someone will call, not a litigator, thankfully, but once in a blue moon, somebody like a client will call me up and they would have, will have read something that I have written and they'll start peppering me with questions about it. Well, you said this, why can't we do that? I'm like, well, yeah. I'm glad that you pulled that out and got that out of the article, but it's completely different in context. It doesn't apply here. And then they get me another one. Like, well, what about this? Yeah. Clients and the Internet are a bad thing, right? We should <laughs> they try to self-educate and then that just, you know, they can never they shouldn't become lawyers. They should trust us to do it. But anyway, um, it's easier to get back to your question. If yeah. the trustee is my client, then that's mm-hmm. way easier because I'm already representing the trustee. We can talk mm-hmm. about what makes sense. And then, you know, make the changes, decide, depending on what jurisdiction we're doing it in, you know, should we give notice? Um, Like the decanting I was describing that I just finished up, um, we did give notice under New Hampshire law um, just because we thought we might have some issues down the road. And I don't want a beneficiary saying, well, I would have objected had I known Um, we could kind of see that coming down the pike. So we did send notice to everybody and I just sent the stuff out. So no one's objected yet. But, you know, I think that's sort of the litmus test. Do you think this is going to be a problem? It's better to know now than to find out later after it's done and somebody is, you know, lawyering up to sue you for having decanted. Do you think you have to do like a final accounting if you do, if you're, if the trustee is, is going to do a decanting into an actual new trust with some different terms in it? So in theory, the original trust is going away. Do you, normally when you're going to terminate a trust, the trustee's duty, unless it's waived, is to produce some sort of accounting that's like the final accounting of what they did with the trust. So do you think it's required in a decanting situation or do you do you address that with beneficiaries? I'd say most of the time we don't. We It's not required here. And we normally, I don't think we do because I'm, I'm the lazy decanter. If I, if at all possible, I don't change the name of the trust. I don't get a new EIN, which I think both of those things are in the Uniform Decanting Act that say you don't have to change the name or get a new EIN, even though technically that old trust has terminated, um, it causes a lot of confusion with clients or trustees if you are, in fact, technically terminating the old trust and going to a new trust with a new EIN, because then you have to retitle all of the assets. And that can just be a tractor pull. That can be really difficult and time consuming and expensive. So if we're all being honest with each other, decanting is amending, right? That's all we're doing. And so to go through some artificial exercise of a brand new trust agreement with a new name and a new taxpayer ID number, if you don't need to, seems to me unnecessary. And if we can do it an easier, more efficient way, we can. I think, again, though, you have to look at, you know, each situation as it presents itself. Yeah. Our, uh, the Arizona statute says you can do a decanting by restating the trust. Yeah. And so frequently that's what happens here is you just restate the trust and we take the same position. We say, well, we're not getting a new EIN. It's just a really a continuation of the prior trust just under different terms and so we're not doing accountings because it's just a restatement and you wouldn't do uh you wouldn't do an accounting on a restatement in any other circumstance so we're not starting there right and you know if you're if you've got a non-grantor trust you're probably doing accountings anyway so it's just in the course of the year you will get it done and if it's a grantor trust we don't 
as a general proposition, don't do um, accountings for grantor trust because the grantor knows what's happening. They're alive. They're getting all the stuff. Sometimes we do. I have a couple we do them for just because there's a lot in there and the grantor wants to know what's going on specifically, but most of the time we don't. So I think either way, you're probably protected because if it's grantor's living and it's a grantor trust, they're going to get the information anyway. And then if it's a non-grantor trust, the trustee's probably doing accountings. Yeah. All right. I have a tech question for you, which will be of no interest to anybody listening to this, but <laughs> I've, I've thought a lot about this. I don't know if I have an answer for it, but, and that is if you do a decanting and you don't quite check every box, you know, of say there's a statute or there's a provision in the trust, you don't quite hit all the boxes, but you do the decanting anyways. Can it be unwound? Yeah, I think so. If someone got upset about it, I think it, I think it would be depend on what box you have not checked, but I would think so. You know, is it substantial compliance? That's not what the statute says. The statute says you can do this and you can't do that. What mm-hmm. will save you is if you have an internal decanting provision in your trust, then you can do what you want at least theoretically. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. No, I, I I feel very similarly about it. So, for example, our statute says in, in Arizona, when I say our, um, the exercise of the decanting authority is the exercise of a special power of appointment, uh, which I think is meant to protect the trustee because the standard, the liability standard for exercising a power of appointment is different from being a trustee, although query whether a trustee can ever really take off that hat. Right. The the case law, though, is not so clear that if you don't check every box in that particular set of circumstances, that the exercise is not voidable. And I also don't know what the statute of limitations is on digging up that issue. So there's always been this like cloud in my mind of like, geez, if we don't check every single box and the statute has some little quirks to it, our little statute has quirks to it. Like, I think theoretically somebody could maybe come back Although I don't know the answer, but maybe somebody could come back and say, ah, you didn't do everything you were supposed to do. It was supposed to be the exercise of a power of appointment that requires strict compliance. You didn't strictly comply. Therefore, it didn't really happen. Wind it all back. And that makes me a little bit nervous on decanting. Says me we don't do them. But as a this, this entire, nerdy lawyer, it makes me nervous. This entire practice area is makes me nervous, right? Like our, we always say our filing cabinets are just full of grenades because Everything seems right when you do it and then you put it away. I mean, how many times have you like pulled out a trust that you thought was fantastic? And then within like three seconds of reading it, you see a typo or you see something you think, oh, my gosh, how did that get in there? Even though you, uh-huh. you were very diligent about putting it together, people are human. You know, the standard is not perfection, shouldn't be at least Um so, you know, stuff happens and circumstances don't always fit neatly within the parameters of the statute. Right. Clients got have. Your statute has weird things in it and your clients have weird things in their lives and you're trying to merge those two things and produce a result that everyone is happy with. And so, you know, you do the best you can right? and you you do things where you're thoughtful about it. You don't want to get sued and you don't want to set your clients up for failure. You want everyone to be successful. You want the trustee to feel confident that they've done it correctly and that it's going to be, you know, hold up over time. And you want the the, you know, the beneficiaries and the grantor to feel like no one's been disenfranchised or whatever. Um, so it's kind of a tricky process. It's not something we do like, you know, it's not boilerplate for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I think when people are being honest, it's, it's a tricky situation, but it's such a powerful tool. It's so, it's a great tool. It's made our like, lives a lot easier. I mean, yeah. it used to be, you used to read a trust and think we are just totally out of luck here. And now we're not. And in, in, in New Hampshire, though, like, we even have unilateral trustee modification by statute. So there are circumstances in which the trustee just, it's like, decanting on steroids it's it's more restrictive in terms of what you can do but the trustee just by statute can go and start fixing stuff and 
no, doesn't need consent, doesn't need notice, doesn't need anything. They just fix it and move on. And so, you know, I think those things have been good developments because, you know, the courts, I don't know how it is in other places, but the courts, at least in New England, are so backed up, so slow. But even before COVID, now forget it. You know, nobody has staff and you can't go in there and all that kind of stuff. So it's been really helpful for clients in terms of keeping costs down and being efficient. Yeah, definitely. Uh, do you... And you kind of mentioned it and that we won't have time to get into it on on this episode, but there are also other tools that are helpful, things like judicial modifications or a modification that the trustee might be able to make on their own. You can also appoint other people with the authority to modify the document. Sometimes they're called trust protectors. Other places call them different things. And so there's all sorts of tools and decanting just happens to be one of them. Do you think it was a, a, a there was a problem and this was the solution searching for the problem? You know, because it, it really was born out of a case that everybody seemed to be relying on for a while. And then people wised up and started states started formulating their own statutes. And do you think the problem was that the perpetuities periods began to be elongated nationally and all of a sudden people were realizing they needed the authority to change trust? Yeah. So I guess there are two parts of that question. Hopefully I remember both of them. Um, yeah, I think I think decanting arose because people thought it is too hard to have to run to court every time. And, and not every judge who would hear a petition for modification understands what's happening, right? As a general proposition, judges in New Hampshire, it's called the probate court, you know, they're they're generalists. They're not like sophisticated T&E lawyers. And so to go in there and explain that to them and have them truly understand can be difficult. And it's not a rubber stamp. And so that I think is number one. And then on the perpetuities issue, you know, to me, that is the, the shoe that's going to drop on decanting because for two reasons. One is if you decant, can you extend the term of the trust? If you have, if you start with a trust that's subject to a perpetuities period, can you decant to a trust that is not? or that has a longer period um, and, and have the trust still be valid. Again, I think that goes back to that conflicts issue that I don't know the answer to that. I wouldn't do it. If, I, if I'm if i starting, with, for example, with a Massachusetts trust and we move it to New Hampshire and we decant it, I am absolutely going to still have that perpetuities period in my new trust. I'm just not going to mess around with that because I think it's too risky. The other risk factor there is the generation skipping issues, which I'm sure nobody wants to talk about. Maybe you want to talk about it later. <laughs> for fun. But, um, you know, you could you could end up having a trust that you start off with that is GST exempt. And by decanting the term, you could mess up your GST exempt status. Not and it's not too hard to do that. I mean, it, that to me is really a trap for the unwary. And there are regulations or treasury regulations that talk about this in the context of a grandfather GST exempt trust that was created before September or whatever the date was of 1985. There aren't a whole lot of those. There are there are some we see, but certainly more of these GST trusts are GST exempt because somebody allocated exemption to them after 1985. And there are no regulations about what decanting does in those situations. So you just want to be really careful if you have a GST exempt trust that you don't get so excited because you're decanting that you mess up your GST exempt status because that will get you sued in a hot minute. That's just a mess. So right. there's lots of stuff to think about there, too. As, so, as soon as somebody figures out what the issue is, yeah, that'll get you that'll get you sued quickly. If there's uh, if there's one thing that shields sometimes uh, trust and states lawyers from being sued, it's that nobody understands what the issues are. So uh, there's the, a little bit of a shield. Answer is, I mean, certainly, yeah, you, true. I mean, the issue is pretty esoteric, right? That's like inside baseball. But the answer is not there either. And there, you know, there's been some talk about, oh, well, if you've got a trust that's GST exempt because there was an affirmative or automatic allocation after 1985, 
maybe you can rely on those regs that apply to the grandfather GST exempt trust. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But like the IRS hasn't told me that, you know, and there's nothing I can rely on other than common sense. And I think you and I both know that common sense is not always does not always win the day in this practice area or with taxes, right? Rarely, I would say very rarely. And uh, when when clients tell me, well, that doesn't make sense, I usually say it doesn't have to. (laughs) That's the perfect answer. Sorry. Somebody else, said that, <laughs> somebody else said that's the rule. That's the rule. Yeah. You know, I'm not yeah. defending the oh. rule. Well, I appreciate it, Amy. Uh, you and I could talk about these things forever, but nobody will want to listen to us talk about them forever. If, <laughs> if people are trying to find you, what is the best way for them to find you? Um, on the big machine on their desk, they can Google me. Um, my firm website has all our contact information, all the good stuff, some resources. I think most of the stuff I publish is probably on there as long as I remember to do it. So mm-hmm. okay, perfect. Right. Yeah, and I'll I'll add uh, the links to the website in the show notes as well, so people can find it there. Amy, okay. I appreciate it. I'm I'm honored that you took time to talk to me. So thank you so much. For oh, that. you're very welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Hey, listeners! Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com. And follow me on social media at Wealth and Law. I'll see you there.